All right, everybody, are you ready to hit it? Let's do it. All right, let's do this thing then. Thank you all for coming out. This is a wonderful turnout. We're here for the book signing release of the Lost Roadhouses of Seattle. Anywhere books are sold, but we're here with the two authors of the book, Brad Holden and Peter Becha. Becca. Blecka. You got it. <laughs> all right, we got it. All right, let's turn it over to the guys. Three o'clock. This is kind of when we planned on getting started. What we did not plan on was selling out of the book already. So. Yeah. The, the uh, publisher has many more. We'll, get, we'll make, place a new order tonight, and I think we'll start a list here if anybody wants to put their email or phone number or something on it. We will get back to you promptly and make sure you get a copy by mail. But what a good crowd, and uh, thanks to the Golden Wheels uh, Car Club for rolling in some of their cool cars out front. And uh, good to see all of you here. All right, yeah, thank you everybody for showing up. We're pleased as punch to have you guys here. So we're going to do a quick little presentation about our book. We don't have a video screen or anything, so this is going to be kind of a brief version of it. But we'll go over kind of the basics of what Roadhouses were all about. Then we'll open it up for questions and answers. We'll take a brief intermission. And then I have a podcast that some of you guys are aware of. It's called Dim Lights and Stiff Drinks, the Dive Bars of Seattle. Thank you. My uh, podcast crew is here. And we're going to record a live episode after the intermission, just a brief one so that you guys can all be a part of and, and uh, watch us do our thing. So does, how does that sound? Awesome. All right, now as far as the book goes, Lost Roadhouses of Seattle, basically roadhouses, to give you a definition of what they were all about, they were born out of early Seattle saloon culture. So from 1890 to the 1910s, Seattle was one of the capitals of a vice. There was a lot of vice going around. And when I say there was a lot of vice going around, I don't just mean there were a few saloons here and there. I mean, every street, every corner, there was brothels, saloons, box houses, billiard parlors, gambling parlors, you name it. And it was such a problem, in fact, that in 1916, Washington State voted to go dry. So 1916, I know, boo. Yeah, 1916, no more alcohol could be sold or manufactured. And it was designed to like shut down all the saloons and those kind of places. In a lot of parts of the states, they were successful, but in Seattle, the party continued on. In fact, if anything, it, it probably even got worse. Yeah. In 1920, national prohibition took effect, and things were taken a little more seriously, because now it was a federal offense if you got caught with alcohol. But in Seattle, the party still continued on, and around 1923 through 1925, the Seattle police, the King County Sheriff's Department, decided that they had finally had enough and that they were gonna close these places down. So they started an active campaign to shut these places down, and put them out of business. Now, it would have probably happened, worked beautifully, except for the fact that at the same time that they were doing this, car culture had started. Automobiles were becoming very popular, so they started building a lot of roads and highways, including two new highways north of the city, basically connecting Seattle with Everett, which was the old Bothell Highway here, and then, of course, Highway 99 slash Aurora. And when those places opened up, new businesses started popping up to take advantage of all the new traffic. And they were remote, and they were in Snohomish County. So I think you could see where this is going. As the police started chasing all the vice owners out of Seattle, they just started setting up on these two stretches of highway. 
they were, like I said, they were remote, and most importantly, they were out of the jurisdiction of the Seattle Police Department. So they just kind of started popping up like mushrooms all over the place. And people started calling them uh, roadhouses. No two roadhouses were exactly the same, but they shared a lot of commonalities, a lot of drinking, dancing, they offered dining. But drinking was probably the biggest part during Prohibition because they were basically operating as speakeasies. In 1933, Prohibition was finally repealed. But the Washington State Liquor Control Board, boo, (laughs) was immediately formed, and they instituted a number of very strict rules regarding the sale and consumption of alcohol. Probably one of the biggest ones was that no tavern or bar or restaurant could serve hard alcohol. In fact, the only thing they could serve was beer or wine, and it had to be 3.2% or lower. Yeah, the big boo on that. By comparison, a Bud Light is uh, 4.4%. So we're talking watered-down light beer, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, and roadhouses were predicated on the idea of having fun. So, of course, they figured out a way to get around this new hard liquor law. So what they basically did is they started allowing people just to bring in their own, own bottles of booze. In fact, you know, a lot of them had dining and dancing, and so they had a cover charge, and included with the cover charge was what they called a setup. They'd give you a setup and they'd bring you to your table. They'd give you two glasses, a bowl of ice, a pitcher, and then whatever mixer you wanted. And then you'd just mix your own cocktails for the night. But you needed to keep your bottle in a paper bag on the floor under yeah, your table. Yeah, you had table. to be discreet about it. Couldn't be too blatant about it. And it was a clever way so they couldn't get busted by the cops. That's the way if the cops came in and found alcohol, the owners could say, you know, wasn't not, we're not serving, you could look in the back. You know, they must have brought it in, we didn't know. Everyone just played dumb, uh, but they knew what was going on. And so people started calling these places bottle clubs. And so this continued through the rest of the 40s and into the 50s. By about the 50s, a lot of these places had kind of disappeared from the landscape, all these roadhouses. But so that's what our book covers. So we kind of split the book in two. I cover all the roadhouses that existed on Highway 99. I live very close to theirs and I have for you know, over 25 years. So I've always had an interest in kind of the... Like, the history of vice along Highway 99. So I covered that part. Likewise, Pete lives not too far from here, so he covered all the roadhouses on the old Bothell Highway, which is now Bothell Way or Lake City Way, depending where you're at. We also cover the roadhouses south of Seattle, such as the Spanish Castle, the China Pheasant, places like that. So that's all in the book as well. So that, in a nutshell, is the history of roadhouses. And with that, I'm going to tee it over to Pete, who's going to talk to you a little bit about kind of the history of the, the roads and uh, the ones here on Bothell Highway, since that's where we're at tonight. So take it away. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. So that sort of does uh, lay it out, the uh, overall concept of prohibition and the beginning of cars arriving here at all. I want to dig back a little deeper into the uh, pre-story to some of that. We are here to talk mainly about roadhouses, but let's talk about roads for a minute. In the research process for this book, I knew nothing about the history of roads in the Seattle area, and uh, it was quite fun to dig into that. Just use your, your mind's eye to imagine early Seattle when the settlers first arrived in what we call Pioneer Square. And for the first eight years of settlement here by those people, there were no roads leading in or out. All the transportation was by foot on forest trails, or along the beach. Sometimes they would walk up from Olympia on the beach if they needed to come up here, or by canoe or ship. That was it. 
But as the little village of Seattle grew, they realized that they needed roads, and the uh, Washington territorial government in, in 1860 provided the funds for a road south of Seattle and a road north of Seattle. They didn't get around to building the north, northern route uh, for, for about 10 years afterwards, but in, 19, or in 1860, they did build uh, what was called the military road, and it went from Seattle to Fort Stillicum outside of Tacoma. That was in 1860. One year later, the first tavern brothel was formed down in Pioneer Square along that road, which is our first avenue, and it was called the Illahee, and the, uh, John Pinnell was the guy who founded that, and uh, he had the brilliance to think, well, I'm having dancing, we're ha we have a piano in the corner, and we're having, uh, uh, serving alcohol, and there's rooms upstairs with the ladies, but we need live music. So he brought in a tavern trio from San Francisco, and so suddenly Seattle had live music. That's just really the beginning of the whole thing, 1861. When, they, when the townsfolk here decided, well, we do need this road going north as well, uh, it was the 1880s, it took about that long for them to get around to that, and imagine this, again, use your mind's eye to imagine, you're down in Pioneer Square, you're trying to get up north to the north of Lake Washington, maybe up to Everett, so you go north on First Avenue, you take a right going east on Stewart, you take a left on Fairview going north, you jump over to East Lake, you cross Lake Union on the Latona Street Bridge, which is long gone, you hook up to 10th Avenue Northeast, which is our Roosevelt, and then, then we came up here to Lake City Way, just down the road here, probably a mile. And what did it hook up with? It hooked up with a muddy uh, logging road that a Norwegian logger immigrant named uh, Gerhard Eriksson built. He had built a house up here on this very road, up at 183rd. And in order to get lumber down to Yesler Sawmill at first and Yesler, he decided he had to put this road in, so he put the road in first. There are remnants of the Erickson Road up here at 135th. It is still signed that way. But in time, it became popularly known and commonly known as the Old Bothell Road. Uh, it went through various uh, evolutions after that. It became, uh, got a list of them here. It went from the Erickson Road to the Bothell Road to the Bothell Highway, and then after World War I, this street right out here became known as Victory Way, then Bothell Way, and finally in 1967 to Lake City Way, and today it's part of State Route 222. But out of all these three roads that we explore in the book, 99 South, uh, 99 North, and then this one, the Old Bothell Road, I like to call it, uh, this probably had maybe the greatest uh, quantity of roadhouses on it. It was just lined on both sides of the road. And I'm just going to quickly read, <laughs> I'm going to quickly read just a list of, to give you an idea of the quantity of these roadhouses that were on this particular stretch. There was the Bluebird, the Canyon Park Inn, the Green Mill, the Lakeview, May's Place, and the ship, which was on a ferry boat docked up at what we now call uh, the Kenmore Log Boom Park. And that was dancing and drinking and dining on an old ferry boat that was tied up there. And uh, Brad and I have done this presentation only once before. And as you mentioned, we are used to having a PowerPoint graphic display behind us because we had all these great photographs, all of which are in the book, but we're not able to show them to you now. But uh, uh, some of these other ones were the Briarcrest Ranch at 155th. The Black Cat at 110th, right above the Bill Pierre Ford, right over here, I think it is. Uh, and the Black Cat was the first one to get busted in a major bust. The Lockhart Inn was at 115th. The Grove, 
no address known, but how do you find it? You look for the blue light. <laughs> the Grove was uh, the first one to get major negative newspaper coverage in the Seattle Times and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer because of the first uh, terrible incident which happened there, which was a drunk patron, a woman was fumbling around in her purse and managed to find her pistol and pull it out and managed to shoot the newlywed groom who was sitting there with his bride. <laughs> So that accidental murder, whatever you would call it, uh, brought you know, weeks and weeks and months of screaming newspaper headlines about how bad these roadhouses were getting, and that started really the citywide perception that there was a lot of crime going on out here. One of the discoveries we made in doing this book, I'm going to also ask people to raise their hands here to tell me who all remembers Parker's Ballroom over on Aurora. A lot of hands. So that was a club opened up in... Uh, I don't know, the early mid-30s by Dick Parker, who was a meat packer. But what we discovered was that Dick Parker's first pavilion, he called it the Highway Dance Pavilion, was up here at 178th. And he regularly booked big dance bands up there. Uh, so I think that's, uh, we just stumbled across that piece of information. He ultimately ended up selling that in 1935, and then he moved over to Aurora and opened up a similar club. So that was a fun discovery. It was in 1927 when the big crackdown on Lake City Way or the old Bothell Road happened, and the King County Sheriff, whose name was what, Claude Bannock, wasn't it? Yeah, Bannock. Bannock. Uh, Bannock. He, he sort of made it a personal crusade to knock out as many of these uh, roadhouses as he could, so he got his uh, gang of liquor agents and deputies, and uh, in one night they raided seven clubs and arrested, I don't know, almost a couple hundred people, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bannock's great line that he was quoted in, in the newspaper at the time was talking about the Bothell Highway was, he said, it's so bad up there, it's the Bottle Highway. <laughs> Here's another list of these, of these rooms that uh, got busted on that New Year's Eve night, the last night of 1926. The Jungle Temple, Hamilton's Barbecue Ranch, the Camel Inn, the Orient Inn, the Tip Top Inn, the Toot Inn, and Otto's Place. And Brad, would you like to talk a little bit about Mr. Olmsted and Mr. Hamilton? Yeah, so when we wrote, when we started writing the book, as we were writing the book, Doc Hamilton, who of course is the infamous uh, speakeasy owner, he owned Seattle's most popular speakeasy during Prohibition, Doc Hamilton, his name kept appearing because, you know, the story leading up to the formation of these places, he was instrumental in all that. And he formed two of the earliest roadhouses, both on the Bothell Highway and on Highway 99. So uh, as we started writing out his story, we realized at some point, like, oh, I guess we're writing Doc Hamilton's story. We didn't intend to do that, but that's just kind of how it ended up happening. So kind of threaded throughout the book is Doc Hamilton's story. And it's the first time that his story has ever been told in complete book form like this. So that's kind of like a happy surprise that happened as a result of the writing of this book. So for those who purchased book today, hopefully you guys will enjoy that part of the story. And, and also mention that uh, there's been very little written about this uh, yeah. Doc Hamilton. He was a World War I veteran, uh, a black man who uh, served as a cook in World War I. But uh, so when he did arrive in Seattle, he opened up his first place up on Madison and 12th. Mm -hmm. And it got to be famous, as Brad said, the most famous speakeasy in Seattle, and part of the reason was because it was during Prohibition, but the mayor of Seattle went there weekly to drink, 
city council people were seen there drinking, and Doc Hamilton was getting arrested regularly. But he became a folk hero in Seattle because he went into every trial laughing, basically. He just didn't take them serious. He knew he was going to get a $15 fine at the end and he'd be back out again. So there's tons of coverage about Doc Hamilton's uh, behavior in these court trials of him either joking his way through or sleeping or pretending to snore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the whole town was always happy, basically, when he got out yet again and got back, back in action. Yeah, yeah, he was a character and he was, he was fun to write about. The last few places that I want to talk about are the ones that are right along this strip here and uh, this has to do with the fact that as Brad mentioned uh, that prohibition ended in 33 and it really became effective in 34 in early 1934 all sorts of local business people decided they wanted to uh, get a new license and open up a tavern or a bar or a legit roadhouse and so evidently were lines of people getting these licenses and so there was another burst of activity with all these new places opening, and a couple examples are down here on the corner at uh, where the Shell Station is, was the China Chinese Castle, which was built with that tower above it, a very prominent building. Uh, it was a restaurant and beer joint at 87th, but it only lasted about six months before the ownership changed, and it was sold to some other people who turned it into the Jolly Roger. And we've heard some, I've already heard some great stories tonight about people who went to the Jolly Roger back when it was open. And of course, the tunnels always pop up, stories about the tunnels. That's always uh, an interesting topic to hear about. So thank you for those who've shared the Jolly Roger stories with us tonight. We did in the book manage to cast a little doubt on some of that stuff. Again, I mentioned that the building had a tower on it. And the story's always been lookout towers so they could look for the sheriff coming down the road. But then you have to consider that the building wasn't built until Prohibition ended. And the tunnel under the road, maybe yes, maybe no, but Prohibition had already ended. So it doesn't rule it out because places were still raided if they were selling unlicensed liquor or smuggled liquor. Or, or hard liquor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or to miners. So there may have been reasons for a tower, may have been reasons to try and escape through the basement tunnel. But the building itself was after Prohibition. And then lastly, in 1937, the shanty. Here we are in the shanty. Yay! And to my view, this may be the classic case of a roadhouse. It was a house, and it's on the road. It just originally wasn't on this road. It was back here on 21st or 22nd, and they spun it around and drug it over here. Uh, and it, after that, it moved three or four times to 88th and 89th, and now it's at 90th. And it's been here quite a long time. It opened in 37 and was owned by the McLeod family. It opened as a beer parlor, and uh, when their son started running the place, it was called Max, from the name McLeod, Max Shanty. And then in 1961, a young real estate man named John Spacaratelli, our host... Yeah! Our favorite 91-year-old bartender. And his lively and lovely daughter, Dana. They bought the place in 1961 and have been running it ever since. And we are just so pleased that they are hosting this event today. And thank them and thank all of you for attending. And we'll take some questions if anything pops up.
Do you know anything about Roy Olmsted getting busted and the um, speakeasy on Magnolia? Yes. So the first book I wrote was called Seattle Prohibition, Bootleggers, Rum Runners, and Graft in the Queen City. Uh, thank you. And it covers the story of Roy Olmsted. So, yeah, I mean, he started out as a, a Seattle cop, had a side hustle as he was a, while he was a cop in which he was smuggling booze. Got caught doing so right after Prohibition took effect. Got fired from the force and then became Seattle's top bootlegger. He eventually got caught and ended up going to prison. Yeah, it was a very, very interesting story about Roy Olmsted. And your second question was about a speakeasy on Magnolia. And supposedly he owned it. Oh, you know, I don't know of, of Olmsted running any speakeasies, but he certainly supplied most of the city's top speakeasies with booze, including Doc Hamilton's speakeasy. Well, it yeah. sounds like you're zoned for a speakeasy if you want to reopen it. <laughs> That's right. Yes, sir. Where'd the liquor come? That's a great question. So are you talking about Durham Prohibition? Yeah, that's a great question. So the liquor, most of it came from Canada. So once Prohibition took effect, Roy Olmsted and other bootleggers would hire rum runners to go up to Canada. Victoria, Vancouver were the two most popular spots. They would load up with booze and then they would smuggle it down, usually at night, down to you know anywhere from Bellingham, Everett, Muckleteo, Seattle, all the way down, Tacoma. Uh, they had a various drop-off points. And then once it made land, trucks would be waiting, they'd load up the trucks. Usually they would bring it over to like a, either a garage or a horse stable. Those te- seemed to be the two most popular places, kind of as a temporary storage until it got disseminated throughout the city's clubs. Yeah. Oh, yes, I sir. Got a question here at the back. Let me get you the mic, sir. When Ken Birds did his uh, series on prohibition, yeah. he gave about 20 minutes to Roy Olmsted. Correct, yeah. And there was an island off the San Juans. I forget the name of it. It was just off Vancouver Island. And that's where the pickup would be for the rum runners. Yeah, that was one of the places. And it was um, interesting because they picked that. He was pretty smart in picking that particular island that you're mentioning because he wanted to pick an island, obviously, that people weren't going to be going to very much. So he picked an island that happened to be home to a leper colony. Uh, And it worked. (laughs) It worked beautifully. Not a lot of people wanted to visit that island. Yeah. The other interesting thing about Olmsted's operation was that uh, him and his wife ran a radio station in the 1920s out of their Mount Baker home. And she read nighttime bedtime stories for kids over the air and things like that. And they figured out that she was sending secret signals to the boat operators. At which Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was I pretty clever. that radio station is still ex- in existence, right? It, became... it was one of Seattle's first radio stations. Yeah, the radio station still exists under different call letters. I can't think of which one it is. But uh, it's Como. It, is it? It eventually became Como. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, number one, I would say that uh, we cover over 63 roadhouses in this book. And we are thinking possibly of doing volume two because since we turned the manuscript into our publisher several months ago, we've discovered at least five more roadhouses. And there's one gentleman in here somewhere who stopped me earlier and said that his, uh, I think, father and uncle, something like that, played in bands 
uh, dan large dance bands in some of these roadhouses, and so he's going to go looking for photos, and he said they made a few records, which is my thing, local recordings, so I'm looking forward to that, but we'll just see how this research keeps going on that. There may be enough for volume two, but to answer your question, the earliest of these places, 1913, 1919, 1921, probably would have had a boogie-woogie ragtime pianist. Uh, one of them was Oscar Holden, who came to town with Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz. Uh, they had both played on the Mississippi uh, River boats with Louis Armstrong, and so they were top players, but they came here in 1919 or 1920. After that, you know, little jazz trios and, and quartets and things like that would have played. Over, over the years, it would have developed into full-on dance orchestras, but I think some of the more rural uh, roadhouses would have had early country music as well. Not, on, not electric, not country-western, but just uh, country music, the kind that my friend Mark Bristol here knows all about. Oscar Holden, this uh, pianist guy who was with Jelly Roll Morton, he was, Oscar Holden was playing clarinet while Jelly Roll played piano, but later Oscar, he stayed in town, Jelly Roll left, but he, uh, he switched to piano, and yes, he was, good question, he was the father of five uh, musical kids, one of whom was Ron Holden, who had a top 10 international pop hit in 1960 with the uh, Northwest Sound ballad, Love You So. And some of the other kids, I mean, Jimmy Holden went on to play with the Reputations, who are one of the most frequent bands that played at the Jolly Roger and Central Tavern downtown and Rainbow Tavern. Scarlet Tree all the time, <laughs> yes. Yep, exactly. And Grace Holden, one of the sisters, one of the daughter, she played piano in some of the first swing bands here with Quincy Jones, was in that band. Ray Charles, she played with Ray Charles. All three of those guys were in one band at one point. And uh, Oscar Holden Jr. played in some bands, and Dave Holden Jr. led his own rhythm and blues bands here in the 1950s, and is still around. I was Grace Holden's bass player for oh, a long time. Oh, wow. Uh, I guess about, about three decades, all the years I was with Ralph Davis. And uh, Grace uh, always made a point of saying that when Jelly Roll was in town, he played in my dad's band. <laughs> <laughs> Something to be proud of. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't Jelly sure. Roll's band, it was Holden's band. Yeah, it was Oscar Holden band. Yeah. yeah. And for years after, every time, I mean for decades after, every time Louis Armstrong came to town, he'd stay at their house or go and have dinner with them at the Holden house at uh, 14th and Washington, right across from the Washington Hall. That's cool. And then, I, did you have a question, sir? Debbie's Roadhouse wasn't mentioned in your book. Debbie's Roadhouse across from Parker's. Actually, that is mentioned in the book. Um, it's, it's in the Highway 99 section. So uh, the Drift On In or Debbie's Drift On In, as you referenced it, it started out in 1935 as a roadhouse called Chinaland. It was opened by the same guy that ran the Chinese castle that Pete was talking about earlier that eventually became the Jolly Roger. So he opened Chinaland. It operated for about a year, and then it became a place known as Club Charmland. It operated as Club Charmland for a few years, and then it went through a series of name changes, and it eventually became the Drift On In, or Debbie's Drift On In. But yeah, that is covered in there. And isn't that the place that originally began? Prior to all that, wasn't that a horse riding camp? Yeah, yeah it was a horse riding camp, and... Um, at, I think it was the, our last book event this past week, somebody was talking to us where they had a basement down below where they used to keep the horses down in the club area. So it has this fascinating history. 
Anybody else? Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. What that were your sources, and what was your most um, surprising, unexpected source? Yeah, that's a great question. So Pete and I, we primarily relied on newspaper archives. was probably our top source. But, you know, we went beyond that as well. We also had, we each had personal sources that we interviewed personally. Um, the person for me was an old historian. that She's still alive. She's in her 90s. And uh, she grew up on Highway 99, uh, I believe in the 40s, when the roadhouses were still in existence. She still remembers them. Her dad was a deputy and even raided a lot of these places. So her childhood was spent with her father coming home and telling all kinds of crazy story about these roadhouses. So she was my primary source. And then, uh, Pete, you had some personal sources too. Yes, uh, it's a familiar name by this point in the, in the show, which is that uh, interviewed all those Holdens. <laughs> Everybody but Oscar, basically. So yeah. uh, I got a lot of those stories from them. And I've been interviewing musicians here since the late 1970s. Uh, both Brad and I, I mean, we found each other because we saw each other's writings around town in various magazines and things, and we realized we had a common interest in that I had mainly been collecting uh, stories and artifacts on about Pacific Northwest music history, posters, records especially, and uh, interviewed about 400 different people about their music careers in Seattle and uh, the Pacific Northwest, and the overlap, and Brad's thing had largely been prohibition and stuff, artifacts from that era. Right. And then we realized that we both had an interest in the roadhouses and thought, well, that's, you know, we should work on a project together because if one of us does it, it's going to be missing half the story. So it made it really easy to just uh, collaborate yeah. on it. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. So we're going to take a brief intermission and then uh, we're going to record a podcast and you can be watch it and gather around and watch us or not, but uh, we're going to be doing that probably in about 10 or 15 minutes. But thank you again for being here tonight. We really appreciate it. And also another shout out to John and Dana Spacaratelli for hosting. Yeah. Start, the, start the music over. Welcome to Dim Lights and Stiff Drinks, the dive bars of Seattle. Like the sitcoms of the 70s and 80s, this is a very special episode of Dim Lights. We are here live at the Shanty Tavern in Lake City. And those are real people in the background you can hear. We're here for the book release of The Lost Roadhouses of Seattle. And here with us, are, here on the show, are the two authors of the book. Brad Holden is a columnist for Seattle Magazine and a freelance writer and a contributor to many local news operations like the Seattle Times and King 5. Our listener probably knows Brad as the co-host of the popular podcast, Dim Lights and Stiff Drinks. Lost Roadhouses is his third book. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thank you. Also authoring the book is Pete... Blecka. Pete Blecka, staff historian and contributing editor of HistoryLink.org and an award-winning author of six books, including his last one, the wonderful novel, Lake City. Encourage everyone to check that out. Pete's also a freelance writer whose work has also appeared all over town. And Peter has the distinction of being called the Indiana Jones of rock and roll, whose musical artifacts collecting skill led to his former longtime da, da, gig da, 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 da. As, a Seattle, as a senior curator at Seattle's uh, Experience Music Project, now, Pope, now Mopop. That's, a fact. That's right. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you very much. Great to be here at the Shanty. All right, so uh, 
Tell us a little bit about how co-authoring works. Like usually one guy's carrying the water and the other guy's kind of slacking. Who, who did the lion's share? Yeah, no, it was pretty evenly split. So the thing is, is Pete and I both write for History Link. I believe that's how we met. Um, you know, his area of expertise is, is Pacific Northwest music. He's a top expert and historian in that area. And of course, mine is Prohibition era roadhouses. So when we met, we discovered we had a mutual interest in local roadhouses. My interest was mostly along the roadhouses along Highway 99, since that's basically where I live. Likewise, Pete lives not too far from here, so his area of roadhouse expertise was the Bothell Highway roadhouses. So when we wrote the book, we just basically split it in two like that. I covered the Highway 99, he covered the Bothell Highway Roadhouses, so it was pretty easy. So 50-50. It was 50-50. We yeah. didn't fight at all over anything. Yeah. It was yeah. peaceful Good the whole working way. Relationship. Yeah, it was a smooth operation. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So uh, give us a taste. Tell us one of the stories in the book about one of the roadhouses on Aurora. Oh, gosh. Well, probably Pick the, one. The, the top roadhouse on Aurora was uh, the ranch. started out as Doc Hamilton's. Barbecue Ranch. That guy's opened. name's all over the place. Yeah, and we cover his story in the book. He opened it in 1927. Of course, he drew immediate attention. It was a packed nightclub. You know, people drunk, wandering in and out of it. And then you got a sign out front that had Doc Hamilton's name and picture on it. So <laughs> it didn't take him? the Snohomish County Sheriff's <laughs> Department very long to connect the dots and be like, oh, I think I know what's going on here. So within four months of him operating it, they carried out a large-scale raid and closed the place down. And then he sold it to his manager who continued operating it for the next 20 years. And it stayed in existence until 1959, so. Nice. How about, uh, give us a taste of a Lake City bar, Pete. Well, one of my favorite Bothell Road, Bothell Highway Roadhouse stories uh, would have to concern the joint known as Willard's. And Willard's... Like Fred uh, Willard. Sort of like that, yeah. But was it, it Fred Willard? Uh, I don't know. I don't know who Willard was, actually. It might be in the book, but we wrote it last year, so I don't remember. But, uh, <laughs> He's uh, the actor from Best in Show. Not yeah. I don't know yeah. these things. I swear to God, Pete, if you want to come on the show, you got to know who Fred Willard is. <laughs> but Willard's came along at a time when the roadhouses along this very stretch of the road had been uh, raided several times. A big, huge raid in 1923, a big raid in 19. 19- the last day of 1926, and the whole entire community of Seattle and the surrounding little suburb towns back then were getting the impression, rightfully so, that these were dangerous places. They were dangerous places to drive to because they were muddy, twisty, winding roads that were unlit, and uh, there, were, there was a number of drunk drivers out there on these roads, and then there was these uh, liquor raids happening by federal agents and King County sheriff deputies and so forth. And so it was getting a nasty reputation amongst uh, a good slice of the population. So Willard, whatever his name was, came along and decided Fred. to open up Willard's up here just about two blocks up. It's on this side of the street up where there's a big public storage facility right now. But their marketing campaign for their grand opening was, and this graphic is in the book, I wish I could show it to you right here and now, but a uh, nice picture of this large facility, this large venue, and a nice circular driveway, and nice shrubbery around it and everything, but the headline on the ad in two or three inch tall letters is, not a roadhouse. <laughs> so, so what was it? 
Uh, it was a roadhouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it had drinking, dancing, dining, and probably nefarious things going on in the parking lot, like all, all the these places. were checked. Yep. So, did that work? The police went, hey, that looked, oh, never mind. <laughs> this is not a roadhouse. <laughs> it got raided. Nice. It got raided, and uh, two years into it, I think it was, uh, like so many of the roadhouse stories ended up, uh, the final chapter on a lot of those roadhouses was uh, burned by arson. So it was a little Was that like uh, collect the insurance money kind of arson? Or? We think the theory uh, is um, something between uh, guys going broke and burning their own place down for insurance or gangsters up the road deciding to come and burn you down because you're the competition and you're doing too well. Competing oh. roadhouses, yeah. Huh. Well, Brad, you kind of talked about what was Roy Olmsted's nickname? The Gentleman Bootlegger. And why was that? Well, he didn't uh, allow his men to carry guns, and he didn't engage in other... He, didn't, he only sold booze. He didn't sell narcotics. He didn't, he didn't fight for turf. Yeah, he didn't fight for turf. There's nothing like that. So he was the gentleman bootlegger. So Seattle was pretty... Uh, as far as that goes, there wasn't violence amongst... No, it wasn't like, like gang the violence East, of people fighting. It wasn't for like territory. Chicago yeah. or New York or St. Louis. That's because yeah. we're Seattle and we're cool. But like when that. it came to the roadhouses, you know, things can get a little. Yeah. Definitely got a little gnarly. What's yeah. a What's a roadhouse where you could really go and get your ass kicked? <laughs> I think if you look for trouble, you can find it pretty much anywhere. Yeah. What about if you're not even looking for trouble? <laughs> you just show up and the fight breaks out. Ah. Yeah. Uh. I don't know. What I, what I will say is that uh, the newspaper coverage of a lot of these police raids on the roadhouses had a surprising aspect to it, uh, to me, which was that the crowds who were being, you know, raided fought back. Uh, yeah, you, you know? touched on that, were, Brad, is the feds yeah. were way more violent than the bootleggers and the yeah, criminals but, here. Like, that's where the worst of it definitely, came Definitely, but what Pete is talking about is the sheriff's department would come in and raid these places, and the customers would fight back. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and that happened a lot. So they were like, a- no, you're not shutting this down. <laughs> There's, you know, 50 of us and five of you. Yeah, and I got a full drink here. I'm not going yeah. anywhere. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that happened quite a bit, so... All right, give Jeremy a mic. We haven't heard from him for a while. He's got a fabulous voice for radio. You can take that out of the stand. One thing, reading through the book is, you know, like any good, amazingly compelling history book, it's, it's less about the, the places and more about the people, right? And one thing I thought was fascinating, you touch upon this a couple of times in the book, is the impact of prohibition, of course, and especially with uh, books leading up to this and... and but also the impact of the Great Depression, right? And you touch, you know, again, a couple of examples of this. And I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about how, in, in the research of the book and the research of these roadhouses, how the evolution of prohibition phasing into the Great Depression had an impact to not, not only these individual businesses along, along the roads here, but, you know, it, essentially the, the, um, the, 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 the attitude, the social attitude about, like, what, what drinking means and going out and having a good time and all that kind of good stuff when you've got, you know, it's really huge social pressures of the Depression. That's a good question. You want to take well, that one? Less money. It sounds like we were kind of doing better than the most of the country here. You talked about roadhouses popping up like mushrooms left and right so people could support them. There were some jobs here that weren't elsewhere, right? Yeah. I think that's true. And, uh, you know, let's just consider that... Uh, going to a roadhouse in those days and getting a nickel beer 
Right, right. Even though economic times were rough, that was still cheaper than trying to, you know, the whole entertainment industry suffered during the Depression. Musicians couldn't get gigs. Uh, you know, theater, a lot of theaters shut down, like dramatic theater, not necessarily like movie theaters, but so the entertainment options were less. And, you know, going out to a roadhouse and having three beers for the evening was still cheap entertainment if you had three nickels. Basically. Nice. So that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah. Nickel beers. And actually, the, the shanty is still very reasonably priced. Yeah, John, uh, nickel beers, anybody? Yeah. <laughs> I'm losing my ass every time I sell a beer. I think we're hearing some support for nickel beers. Nickel beers, bring them back. Uh, Pete, I want to jump off the Roadhouse section because when I read about you that you were one of the senior curators at uh, Experience Music Project. So... Did Paul Allen give you a mission, like, go find me one of Eric Clapton's guitars? Or did he, did he just say, go, whatever you can, get what you can get and bring it here? The approach was two-pronged. One was that, if you remember, if you were around during the time the project started, it was going to be the Jimi Hendrix Museum. Right. For the first three years of planning. So I was in on seven and a half years of planning that museum before it ever opened. Oh, so you were just looking for Jimi stuff, anything you for can get. For the first three years. And then grunge exploded. Right. And at this time, you know, I started pitching them, and we brought in consultants from Toronto and London and Boston, museum professionals, and uh, they all were of the mind that you can't make a museum to one person anymore. <laughs> you don't make a Henry Ford museum anymore or, or something that, right, that right. just celebrates one man's accomplishments. So we started, we sort of created a little bit of a cabal there and started plotting behind the scenes like we've got to broaden this thing. And so, you know, I can take some serious credit for having broadened the idea to why not Jimi Hendrix and the Northwest music scene. Right, right. And that went on. So the answer to that question was, yes, we started collecting only Hendrix. And as the, uh, I was the uh, curator of collections at that time. And so, yes, I got to basically fly around the world and buy expensive Hendrix stuff. And nice. Tell us about a couple finds. Did well, you buy any guitars? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. The Monterey guitar. Nice. I bid on Wait, no, it. the one he set on fire? Yes. <laughs> one of the ones he set on fire. <laughs> and, uh, well, let's put it this way, too. Uh, when I joined, they had, like, three Hendrix artifacts. They had the Woodstock guitar, Hendrix's black hat, and some other thing. The white one that he played uh, from the last, yep. last number? Yep. That's there? That's Stratocaster. One piece. So, that's, so that's where it started. When I left... After eight and a half years, the collection was 80,000 artifacts. So Whoa. I went on a spree. Well, and Pete, didn't you acquire Jimi Hendrix's record collection? Is that yes, true? Yes, that was through a major auction that we wow. bought his personal record collection and had that shipped back from London. Wow. wow. What kind of shit was in that collection? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, uh, what else? Probably everything he ever wore on stage. Military stuff, his and draft he, card, and he's like, whatever. like, what the fuck kind of moments in that collection? In the record collection? Oh yeah. Uh, there were some classical records in there. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. that seemed unlikely, but he had folk, he had folk rock. I mean, he was keeping up with uh, 1965 stuff, so the Birds. But he had Buddy Guy blues albums, and he had uh, uh, Butterfield blues albums, and so he was listening to state-of-the-art American blues, guitar blues. Nice. And, uh, but it was a collection, you know, about this. So oh, there's okay. everything in there. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, what about uh, Kurt Cobain guitar? Did you have any of those? 
Yes. Nice. Uh, Did you find it? Uh, Did you talk to Courtney and say, can I please have one? You're on tender territory there. Oh, really? <laughs> I've had well, my moments. No, with, no one's listening. Come on. I've had my moments with Courtney and don't want to talk about it. <laughs> oh. We got we got her permission beforehand. So yeah, it's, that's it's all good. good. Yeah, so she's cool. She's cool with it. She's good with it. I had a beer with her once, and uh, she was very nice that time. <laughs> very nice. We should also mention Peter has another book coming out. He's busy man. Nothing stops. It's coming out in January, and it's called Stomp and Shout, and it's an oral history of Pacific Northwest rock and R and B. It is. Stomp and shout. Work it on out. And that's a great format. I lo- I'm a sucker for those oral hi- music histories, like uh, Please Kill Me. Have you read that? Uh, the Love New it. York punk scene, and yep. there's one on the L.A. punk scene called uh, We Drop the Neutron Bomb. Don't know that. Um, yeah, that, that one's really good. So uh, I imagine you talk to everybody. Is there any names you talk to that we would recognize? Drop a name. Yeah. Drop a name. Uh, Courtney Love. <laughs> Basically, this book came about because since 1978, uh, in the years between then and now, I interviewed over 400 musicians. Oh, that's right. You do liner notes, and uh, you've been working in Pacific Northwest rock journalism for many years. Correct. So it's kind of accumulation of all your work. And I thought it was important to not only interview the musicians who made all the hits from around here, like, say, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Dawn and the Good Times, the Sonics, the Whalers... The Dynamics, the Viceroys, Woo! Ron Holden, the Ventures, yeah. uh, Bonnie Guitar, all these people. Uh, I also made a point of going and finding the original audio engineers who owned the early studios, the radio DJs, the uh, record label owners. Drop some engineer names. <laughs> Carney Barton. There's some big ones. There's some big ones, right? Carney Barton. Carney Barton. Nice. Ar- architect of the Northwest Sound. Give us some DJs that people might not. Well, Pat O'Day. Pat O'Day. Yeah. Nice. Dick Curtis. Yeah. <laughs> so, the point being, I had gone to the trouble of interviewing 400-some people, and then COVID broke out, and I didn't know what to do with myself, and I'd been putting off this uh, project of wanting to turn all that into another book, because I've published a few about Northwest music already, but I was sitting there furloughed at home thinking... What am I going to do after I clean the garage and, you know... Yeah, it's been cleaned three times already. Reorganize my shoes or something, you know? I thought, here I am sitting at home. This is the one chance I'm ever going to have to take six months or something and dive back into all 400 of those interviews. Nice. So the book, Stomp and Shout, R&B, and the uh, Origins of Northwest Rock is the title. University of Washington Press is publishing it, and it has quotes from 97 of these people telling their own stories. Nice. Uh, how far does it go up in terms of year? Would you it's, about? On page one, it starts with Ray Charles arriving in town. Uh, who's he? Ray Charles. Okay. You know, <laughs> the genius of soul. Okay. Oh, that guy. And it quickly goes into him crossing paths with 15-year-old Quincy Jones, Ernestine Anderson, all these people, and it sort of tracks how it went from that jazz thing into the rhythm and blues thing then influenced all the white teenagers to form rock bands. Then you get into the Sonics and the Wailers and... Yep. Nice. And it also weaves in once and for all the Jimi Hendrix story. Okay. Everybody knows he was from here. That's right. Wait, you you say once and for all. Sounds like you're writing the definitive story of Jimi Hendrix? (laughs) In Seattle. Wow. Okay. That's that's, that's a bold statement. Well, Well, here's the proof. 
I went and interviewed uh, most, if not all, of his boyhood musician buddies, the guys that were in his teenage bands here. He was in three different bands, and, uh, you know, and uh, so it weaves in perfectly into the stories of all these other bands. So you can back up a recurring statement that we make on this show as we continue to research these places. Everything is from Seattle. Computers are from Seattle. Amazon's from Seattle. We, rock and roll is from Seattle, right? We invented coffee here. We in, coffee's from Seattle. Planes are from Seattle. What else? Everything's Heroin. from Seattle. Heroin. Roadhouses. Nordstrom. Nord. <laughs> Filson. So yeah, the road, rock and roll and jazz come from Seattle, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah. We had pretty good rock and roll from here. Pretty yes. good rock and roll. All right. All right. Uh, we get about ready to knock it on the head. What else we got? Let's uh, get someone in here for a question. The family circle in Federal Way. Oh, are you talking about the amusement park? Yeah. Oh, okay. I've never heard of that. Oh, so it was kind of like Disneyland where they would have bands at the amusement park? One of the guys from Gabriel was going to attend today, and I don't know if he did or not. Gary Rule. I, I didn't see him, but uh, I think he was coming. So I know, recognize all those band names, but not much, I don't know much about that. Butter fat. Sounds yummy. Yeah. <laughs> Who does that with some rum. Yeah. <laughs> All right, very nice. What about you, Brad? Are you working on anything? I know you got an article coming out about uh, something we touched on on a recent podcast. Yeah, um, I'm going to just kind of take a vacation from book writing for a while and just focus no, on not. freelance writing. No, you're not. No, <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I am taking a break, uh, but I... I'm talking to some publishers, and I got a couple ideas, you know, churning upstairs. Some, some, some irons in the proverbial fire. Nice. So we'll see what happens. Okay, very good. All right, uh, Trombley, uh, get queued up. We're going to do some exit music here. Give me the high sign when we're ready. And, uh, we'll knock it on the head. Next guy, Fred Lynch.